morning, everyone. Morning. There's a subject that is offered at the college that I study at, uh, which teaches the doctrine of God. Now, I haven't done that subject yet, so I can't tell you exactly what it covers, but I fail to believe there could be any other verse in the Bible that tells me more about God than this one that we're going to look at today. It contains one little word that punches far above its own weight as far as the doctrine of God is concerned. And that word is, of course, the word grieve. It's a word that cuts deep into the human heart. And those of us that have experienced grief know of the deep pain that it brings. Perhaps you may have experienced the loss of a spouse, your loved one, your partner in life, your best friend. Perhaps you may have outlived one of your children and you have known the pain and the sadness and the separation of that eating away at you. But perhaps it's not been death that has caused you grief, for death is only one kind of grief. There are many kinds of grief. Children sometimes make poor choices in life. And parents must watch them struggle with the consequences of those choices, perhaps in an abusive marriage, perhaps wrestling with an addiction, perhaps getting caught up in the judicial system, or even doing permanent damage to themselves that they must live with forever. Could there be a greater torment than watching someone that you love have to struggle in that way? It is a source of deep and ongoing grief. But it's not only children that make poor choices, we make many of them ourselves. And those choices we must live with their consequences and our children often must live with the consequences of our choices. They may have been big decisions as you've pondered perhaps a financial decision or an investment decision. The decision on whether or not to take a job, the decision on whether or not to move interstate. Perhaps they may be just a spur of the moment decision, that decision to drive too fast to get to that appointment which resulted in perhaps a car accident and you live with the consequences of that decision. The decision to stay or go in a bushfire is one that can change people's lives forever. Or the split second that you might have got distracted watching your two-year-old play around the pool. Deep and heartfelt grief is the result. Loved ones walk away from their life in Christ and they trade in the riches of heaven for the comforts of earth and what comes with that is much grief for those who have loved them we humans know something about grief because we have experienced it and that this is a word that God chooses to apply to himself speaks deeply to us. It says more to me about God than any of those other big words can. Words like omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent or righteous. 
I think perhaps it teaches us more about the doctrine of God than can be learned from taking any class in theological college. Our God grieves and the source of that grief is us. It's not the non-Christians in this world. They're not grieving the Holy Spirit. We can't blame this kind of grief on the evils that are out there in the world like we so often love to do. We can't bundle it all up and say it's the adulterers and the fornicators and the thieves and whatever else and put them all together because it's them and not us that is grieving the Holy Spirit. Certainly these people might be resisting the Holy Spirit but Paul didn't write this letter to them. If you look at the very first uh, verse of the, the letter to the Ephesian church, it tells you who he wrote it to. And it says to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He wrote to Christians. And so it is Christians, just like so many of us here this morning, to whom he appeals, saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Did you know there are four direct commands in the Bible concerning the Holy Spirit? They come in pairs, two do's and two don'ts. And we've covered the do's already in the last couple of weeks. Do be filled with the Holy Spirit and do walk by the Spirit. And today we begin with the negative commands. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And next week Pastor Glenn will speak to do not put out or quench the Spirit's fire. Now, if we're honest, none of us really like being told not to do something. There's something in human nature that when we see a sign that says wet paint, do not touch, what's the first thing we want to do is just put a hand on it to check that it really is wet. Or the one that I did when I was a teenager, danger electric fence. Oh, is it really? Oh, it is. <laughs> and I had blisters across here to prove it. So normally a negative command doesn't really have a lot of appeal to us, but this one does, and it does because there is a wonderful truth that underlies this command that we all know instinctively. And that truth is that we grieve deeply because we love deeply. The more you have loved a person, the more you will grieve over their mistakes or over their passing. You know, 430 people have died so far in this current flu season in Australia. The chances are you haven't given them much of a second thought unless you happen to have been close to one of those 430 people. And then our flu season and the results of it will have caused you significant grief when I hear of someone's child going off the rails it saddens me but my sadness only turns to grief if that's my child or the child of my brother or my sister or perhaps even one of your children that's when sadness becomes grief we grieve deeply because we love deeply and God does too you and I are children of God and he loves us very much and therefore it is possible for us 
to cause great sorrow to his heart. Now, I've told you before about uh, the first house that Bruce and I owned after we got married. Um, a place in Eltham, wonderfully situated along the railway line, giving it a certain rumbling kind of ambiance every 40 minutes as the train went past and we had to stop all conversation until it had moved on. Also gave it a certain kind of affordability, which is why we owned the house. And the top left image there shows the house when it was purchased. And the bottom left after considerable work on our behalf in the garden. We later built on a garage, that's Bruce pretending that he's actually doing the bricklaying, he wasn't really, but <laughs> we built on this garage and it became the best feature of the house because it was the biggest room in the house um, and because we decided that we wanted to make it not look like a garage from the road. So we scoured all the secondhand dealers and got windows, three big windows and so from the side our garage looked like a bedroom which made the house kind of look bigger than it was. And after the garage was done, we put in a driveway and of course we thought we had the best garage and driveway in the street. Out the back, the place looked like this when it was purchased. Just a big open muddy space. But it wasn't long before we had native garden beds established and trees and a lush lawn and we built a veggie patch and a chook house and we had flowers and all the things that people like in their backyards. And we did all of this on our own because we enjoyed it, but also because that's all we could afford at the time. And every weekend we would be out building or planting or mowing or painting or maintaining. And Bruce was fastidious about his lawn. He had a special tool that he used and he would seek around the lawn looking for any weed that might happen to have found its way into our lawn. And he even knew which grasses were weeds and which ones were meant to be in the lawn. And he would exterminate these weeds. And he had a, a love-hate kind of relationship with my chooks because they used to scratch the mulch off the garden beds onto his lawn. And so every day he'd be out scratching the mulch back to where it was supposed to be. We loved that place because it was ours and because we had invested ourselves into it and nurtured it to be just the way we wanted it to be. We sold the house about 15 years ago when our patience with the noise of the trains along the back fence ran out and when our family outgrew the, the number of bedrooms that we had. But sometime later I bumped into our old next door neighbour and she told me this great tale of woe about what had happened to the place since we'd left. And the new owners had arrived with six dogs and they divided the garden into three with cyclone fencing and they had two dogs in each section. And the dogs had systematically destroyed everything that Bruce and I had put into that backyard. The veggie patch all chewed up. The washing line even had to come down because they chewed the, the wooden stakes that were holding it up. And the grass was knee-high, and the dogs, of course, annoyed her because they barked all night. This is what our home turned into. Um, you can see the back fence clearly needs a little bit of work. 
And when you peer in through the back fence now, this is what you see. The three sections that they had for the dogs is now only one because some of the dogs have either died or moved on. But the cyclone fencing remains a feature in the backyard in the giant rubbish heap which remains to this day. All of the garden beds are gone. You can't see any of them. They're just weeds. Many of the plants are dead or dying. Um, the decking is all falling to bits and the paint's all peeling off the house. To this day, it is difficult for Bruce and I to walk past that house. And there's like a walking track that runs along near where the train line is. Um, and it's difficult for us to look at that place because we were invested in it and we put so much of our time and energy into it. And I think to myself, if that's how I feel about the bricks and mortar that I lived in, imagine how the Holy Spirit must feel about his dwelling place. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, accepting him as our personal saviour, the Holy Spirit, who is God's gift of himself, comes to abide in us. And he has a lot of work to do, cleaning up from the previous owner. Bit by bit, out goes the negative attitudes. One bad habit after another bad habit has to be broken and dealt with. He has to loosen our affinity for negative attitudes and influences and he has to replace sinful desires with godly ones. It can be a long process, but the Holy Spirit labours away because it is a labour of love. And just as Bruce and I loved our first home because it was ours and we had invested ourselves in it and nurtured it, how much more does the Holy Spirit love you? He has invested himself heavily in you and he has nurtured you to become more like Christ. And he is grieved greatly when space in his dwelling place is rented out to sin and that tenant is allowed to run amok, doing all sorts of damage. In its simplest form, that is what I believe it means to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Paul gives us some more specific examples of what it might look like. So if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, we're going to begin at chapter 4, verse 25, and we're going to go through to chapter 5, verse 2. Now, really, I could have gone anywhere in chapter 4 or 5 because both chapters are loaded with things that grieve the Holy Spirit, but I had to limit it to somewhere. So we're going to start at 4, 25 and we're going to work our way gradually through them. So from 4.25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So you can see what he's saying there. Do not give the devil a foothold. Don't allow him into my dwelling place. You know, for many years, my brother-in-law and his wife were deeply involved in property investment and they were very good at it. She would pick the areas that were about to increase in value and they would buy a fixer-upper and he would fix her up. 
and then they would put tenants in and they would wait for the uh, property value to go up while the tenants paid the mortgage. And then they would flip the property once the property value had got to where they thought it was going to peak. Now, one of the areas that they invested in was Geraldton. Now, for those that don't know, Geraldton is 400 kilometres north of Perth. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But they went into this area because she had heard of a proposed new port development, which they believed was going to open the area up to increase mining and increase industry, and that would push up pressure on the housing market in that area and would increase their investment. So they bought a couple of properties and did them up and took in some tenants while they waited for a decision re regarding this port's investment. Well, those properties gave them more trouble than any of the other 28 or so properties that they had all over Australia. You see, being 400 kilometres north of Perth, Geraldton is a long way away to check up regularly on your tenants. It's not easy just to drop in. But when they did, this is the type of thing that would confront them. Holes in walls, broken windows, cars up on blocks in the front yard or the backyard, rubbish everywhere, grass, knee high. In fact, one time my brother-in-law was telling me about a visit he made and he saw the children from the house playing outside and it was a hot day so they were playing with a hose and one was chasing the other with the hose and they were trying to squirt each other and the one who was being chased ran inside the house into the lounge room and was doing like this through the lounge room window to his brother. So the brother simply turned the hose on harder and squirted it in through the lounge room window soaking all the carpet and the couch as he did. You would not believe what they went through trying to get rid of those tenants. Once they're in, it's very difficult to get bad tenants out. And that's what Paul is trying to tell the Ephesian church. Don't let the devil get a foothold because once he's in, it's going to be difficult to get rid of him. So keep him out of my dwelling place. Paul continues in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, out with this old mess of the previous tenant, you couldn't ask someone to move into a property that looked like that, could you? And so if you own that house, you need to get busy cleaning it up if you expect someone else to move in. Likewise, we can't expect the Holy Spirit of God to dwell where sin abides, and so we need to work with him and get busy cleaning it up. And I think Paul knows the human psyche very well because here he not only says, don't steal any longer, but he says, find something else to do with your hands that is useful. Don't let your hands be idle so that you'll be tempted to go on sinning, but give them something useful to do so that you can share with those in need. And so we continue in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs 
that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has put his mark on you and on me. And in ancient times, as Pastor Bruce explained a couple of weeks ago, people didn't just sign their name on a decree because that was open to forgery. Seals were used. And a seal was a ring or a stamp and they were often worn around the neck so that they couldn't be stolen or lost. And they were used much like we use a signature today. And many of you might recall at the end of the book of Esther, Esther, Queen of Persia, has revealed to the king Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. And so the king orders that Haman be hanged and to Esther and to Mordecai, the Jewish relative who had looked after and raised her, he hands his signet ring. And it is a very significant moment because the king's signet ring was his seal. And as he hands it to them, he says this, Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So in effect, what he was saying was write out whatever edict you like and because it is sealed with my ring, I will own that document. It is written in my authority and therefore whatever is written on it will become law. Now the document that they prepared granted freedom of assembly for the Jewish people and it granted them protection and it is a document or an event that is celebrated annually today by the Jews um, as the festival that we call Purim. And it is the happiest celebration on the Jewish calendar and it is marked by much dressing up and much reenactment of the events of that time, street parades, feasting and the giving of gifts to the poor. You and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and perhaps the closest thing we might have to that kind of seal today is the marking that farmers might put on their cattle. It is a mark of ownership. A marked cow belongs to the farmer who has paid the price for that animal. Everyone knows who has paid for the animal and therefore everyone knows who will be looking after that animal. The farmer in branding the animal not only stakes his claim on it but he commits himself to the care and to the well-being of that animal into the future. And our seal also brings with it a commitment that will be fulfilled on the day of redemption. On that day, our seal will be all that is needed to identify exactly who it is that we belong to. Paul continues in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
There's more cleaning up there, isn't there? More cleaning up for the heart is now the dwelling place of God and God cannot abide with sin. Having also received forgiveness ourselves, it is then our responsibility to extend that forgiveness to others. Joyce Meyer describes unforgiveness as spiritual filthiness. Harbouring unforgiveness is like telling the Holy Spirit, you can have all of this area, but stay out of this room because there's dirty stuff in there. The Holy Spirit wants all of us. You can't brand and own just half an animal. It doesn't work like that. Likewise, if you want the Holy Spirit to be active in your life, you have to give him free reign over every part and not just limit him to certain things that you're willing to turn over to him but keep him from other areas that you're unwilling to give up. Moving on to chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. How is it that we follow God's example? We do it by the Holy Spirit's help. If we turn every part of ourselves over to him, he will do that work of transformation in us. It might take time as we deal bit by bit and one by one with all of those things that hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. But with his help, transformation will happen as we seek to follow God's example. So, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been angry? Have you ever harboured ill feeling towards someone? Have you ever refused to offer forgiveness to someone? Or ever said something that perhaps you might not have said had Jesus been standing right next to you? If you have, then the Holy Spirit has grieved over you. So what is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, it's all of these things that we've discussed and if you want to keep going and read on through chapter 5, you'll see many more things that grieve the Holy Spirit but all of them are sin. If we tolerate sin in our lives, we are effectively renting out part of ourselves to a very destructive tenant while at the same time asking the Holy Spirit to live there. We take some of what should be wholly his and we give it away. And the Holy Spirit grieves because he knows what the consequences of that will be. Just like a parent grieves over the poor choices that a child might make that will hinder them into the future. And it's important to note what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will depart or abandon you. Instead, he grieves. Our God grieves over us. That deepest 
of all human emotions is God's response to our sin. You know, in our house, we have five rooms that Bruce and I prefer to keep the door closed on because of their messy state. We call them Luke's room, Joel's room, Zoe's room, Rain's room and Shiloh's room. (coughs) And we've done our best over the years to try and improve the state of these rooms. We've tried competition. We've tried rewards. We've tried removal of privileges and threats. We've even tried bribery at times. And when all else failed, we introduced what we called the cone of shame. This is the cone of shame. And it alerts people that there is a danger ahead. There's a category one messy bedroom. And so at the end of the week, we used to put this outside, whoever's bedroom was the most shameful. And it sat there hoping that this would incite some sort of shame in the owner of that bedroom. And it worked for the first week. And then after that, the cone of shame simply became something to step around to get into your bedroom or to kick further down the corridor. And sometimes the cone of shame was moved deliberately to point out the flaws in someone else's room that they thought was more deserving of the cone than their own. Do you have a little part of you that you like to keep closed off from the outside? Is there a part of you that, if you're honest, you would say is a little bit of a mess? Consider, is there any part of my life that I'm not proud of? Perhaps it's the way I speak to other people. Perhaps I'm a bit prone to anger at home. Perhaps the image and persona that I project on a Sunday morning at church is not quite what everyone at work or at home sees. Perhaps there's someone in my life that I'm just not willing to forgive. Or perhaps there's a bad habit or a thought pattern that I just can't let go of. So I keep it locked away. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit any longer. Do not just keep stepping over the the cone while you continue to hold on to whatever it is that you're not prepared to release. Don't try to move the cone on by pointing out someone else's flaws, which you believe are worse than your own. And don't just keep shutting the door on the mess. Be brave enough to give the Holy Spirit what he desires and what he deserves, access to all areas of your life. Free reign to do whatever he pleases in his abode. Only then will he be free to complete that work of transformation in you Ephesians 2:22 says this and in him you too all of us are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his holy spirit so let's make sure that our dwelling place is fit for such 
a holy tenant. Amen. We're going to sing our response now. Um, it's a prayer, a prayer sung in song. Uh, you learnt it just before. It's a beautiful song that speaks of our response.